0: Hi, I'm Peter Drobak, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Reimagine, the podcast about people who are inventing the future. If you've been tuning in to Series 1 and want to know more about social entrepreneurship, or you'd just like to spend some time in the company of an extremely cool woman with a voracious intellect and a lot of wisdom about how change happens, then this episode is just for you.
1: Ginger Rogers. What is she famous for doing? Everything that Fred Astaire does but backwards and in high heels. The social entrepreneur has to do everything the entrepreneur does, come up with the game-changing idea, build the market, bring the beneficiaries into the fold, but backwards and in high heels.
0: For two decades, Sally Osberg has played an outsized role in growing the field of social entrepreneurship. She was the founding president and CEO of the Skoll Foundation, one of the world's leading organizations in this space. With Roger Martin, Sally was the author of the seminal book, Getting Beyond Better, How Social Entrepreneurship Works. And she's also an associate fellow here at Saeed Business School. Sally has influenced a generation of social entrepreneurs, including me. She's been a friend and mentor through a fair number of twists and turns, and she's a big reason why I ended up here in Oxford.
1: It is my very great pleasure to introduce you to the new director, Peter Drobak. Peter's research and academic interests include implementation science and the development of high-performing health systems. When you get him for a drink later, ask him what implementation science is. I have no idea.
0: That's why Sally just had to be part of this podcast. The whole point of Reimagine is to explore how change happens by getting into the minds of social entrepreneurs. This episode is a chance for us to get under the hood to see how social entrepreneurship works. If you've been listening to Reimagine, you'll hear a lot of familiar themes. But today, we'll go deeper. I started by asking Sally, what is social entrepreneurship?
1: Well, social entrepreneurship is the agency Required to bring about change in the world. So at, there are many actors in this domain of making the world a better place, of making institutions more effective, of making governments more accountable. You know, choose your unit of analysis. But the social entrepreneur is an agent of change. So if the social entrepreneur is differentiated from the social advocate or the social service provider in putting her or his stock in the process of driving societal change. So that imperative is really what distinguishes the social entrepreneur from these other actors, all of whom are engaged in bringing about a better world. The social entrepreneur is distinguished for wanting to reset the equilibrium from a place which disadvantages some very significant sector of the population to a new equilibrium in which everyone can flourish and benefit. But those who are marginalized, disadvantaged, or oppressed have the opportunity to flourish.
0: So many people just equilibrate social entrepreneurship with social enterprise or maybe starting social businesses. What you're talking about is something much broader. Can you talk about the ways that social entrepreneurs can work across sectors? Well, that
1: is really a sine qua non for social entrepreneurs. And one of the revelations I've come to is that the term social entrepreneur isn't as much an oxymoron as it is definitional for a way of working, a social way of working that understands these challenges are embedded in societal structures and systems and that unless you are engaging those members of the of the system in the solution you have very little hope of achieving the social impact so it speaks to both a way of working as well as a result at the other end of mm-hmm. the other end of the spectrum So this social way of acting really understands that your first challenge is to work in solidarity with those whom you are trying to benefit. So those stakeholders, the people on the ground who are most disadvantaged, oppressed, marginalized, are your first constituent, your first partner. So that act of engaging that population is critical to social entrepreneurship. Beyond that, of course, um, social entrepreneurs are striving for the sustainable solutions to reset the equilibrium from a state of less advantageous benefit for populations to maximum benefit for populations. Resetting that requires engaging with the private sector, engaging with the public sector, engaging with the NGO sector, and most of all with the constituents who are themselves most affected by the suppression or disadvantage.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that and I can't emphasize enough how important that is. We you know if you think about the the kind of iconic commercial entrepreneurs, right? We tend to lionize them as the heroic lone individual, the big personality, the big vision, sometimes the irascibility. And sometimes that sort of um, trope gets carried over into thinking about social entrepreneurs. And, you know, this is really a team sport and it's never a straightforward linear journey. There are always bumps in the road. And, um, you know, without that blend of humility and persistence, you're not going to get very far. This concept of, of, if shifting an equilibrium is really important because uh, an equilibrium remains in place because there are powerful forces keeping it in place and, and reinforcing the status quo, and it's really difficult to change that in a way that's going to be sustained. Could you maybe give an example of a social entrepreneur um, who really whose work really demonstrates this notion of equilibrium change?
1: Absolutely, there are there are myriad examples, um, and of course, one you're very very familiar with is the work that Partners in Health has done over many many years, beginning in Haiti, but then in countries like Peru, Rwanda, South Africa, all over the world to actually attack these health systems that are failing too many people. Attacking them by ensuring that government actually has the training, has the facility, and has the support to be able to drive improvements in the system itself. Mm-hmm. How did Partners in Health attack the challenge of multi-drug resistant TB in the shanty towns of Lima? An epidemic broke out in the '90s. You're of course familiar with this, Peter. And the institutions of the world, the WHO in particular, had decided that this was too expensive. That the treatment protocols were too complex that, that a solution would never get, legs would never be sustained, would never be effective, and in fact, would waste money if implemented in that context. Well, PIH went about proving that in fact, with the community health worker, you could observe the treatment methodology, you could support patients, you could actually institute a regimen that ensured the efficacy and the adherence to this this regimen by patients, and you could achieve outcomes, 83% reductions in transmission that were as good as or superior to those that were being achieved in developed world context. So with that, PIH was able to shift global policy and ensure that then the drugs, the treatments would be available in these resource-poor settings. And that's an example, I think, a very compelling example of how you can drive Equilibrium change. A single disease, proof of concept, uh, and the research, actually, and the rigorous research to be able to prove this solution would work. And of course, now direct observation therapy is is an established practice in global health.
0: It's a great example. I think uh, really some of the key elements of how change happens are are illustrated there. The notion of um, entrepreneurs disrupting the status quo and um, and, and showing what's possible um, when others really um, uh, you know really think that a challenge is insurmountable. Um, the notion of fighting that status quo in this case through science and scientific activism. Also with advocacy and with social movements. And then there was also an element of, of uh, disrupting markets as well. And these drugs were expensive for really no reason because they were off patent. And so once we we're able to reset that and reset those markets, we could dramatically drive down the cost of treatment. And then something that was once not cost effective magically, you know, is. Um and so I think these are some really important elements.
1: And and you and you um point to that off-patent discovery in this in this fight, which was absolutely critical to driving the cost down for the treatments. And there have been lessons learned there in um, approaches to other diseases, to ARVs and so on. So the the lessons of that experiment didn't just apply to multidrug-resistant TB, but to global health, to the um, wisdom of advanced purchase agreements and so on, getting the ARVs at scale so you could treat populations all over the world who didn't have access to these drugs you see the application of this thinking mm-hmm. and of this lesson and that's another dimension of social entrepreneurship these lessons get picked up by other by other fields or within a field and the expansion of impact is really is really
0: just tremendous There's another concept here that we're going to talk a lot about on this podcast, and that's the one of reframing Uh, the notion that um, being able to zoom out and look at the entire system surrounding a problem, but then also zooming way in and getting granular and really on the ground by being in proximity with folks affected by the problem and and, uh, leveraging that sort of lived experience allows you to look at the problem in a new way to reframe the problem. And what Partners in Health did was reframe a medical problem as a poverty problem and understanding that there were forces that were large in this, that were driving people into disease in the first place and then getting them stuck in that cycle. And that kind of reframing can unlock new kinds of solutions as well. And, and, and part of that model involved community-based support for patients. It involved food because you can't keep the medicines down if you don't have food in your tummy. And so that's a really important concept as well.
1: It's a totally, it's an invaluable concept and poverty really is at the root of many of these challenges, whether they're in health or education or equity. Um, another ex- example of an organization that's worked for 25 years in sub-Saharan Africa is CampFed, the Campaign for Female Education in Africa. And Cotton, who's the founder of the organization, actually was traveling in Africa to carry out research on the gap between uh, girls and boys in the educational system. I mean, as a child moves from primary to secondary education, the number of girls who actually drop out and disappear is three times the number of the boys who stay in the system. So she was researching what this was. Was this a cultural practice? Were these norms in communities? What was was really driving this? And of course it was poverty. Mm -hmm. So forced to make a choice, families would decide that their boys had a better chance of gaining the financial uh, acumen and the networks that they would need to be able to resource the family. And they were keeping the girls at home, or they were marrying the girls young, or doing whatever was they deemed necessary to secure that girl's that girl's future. And so mm. poverty was the was the root cause. So how do you attack that? You mm-hmm. attack it by ensuring that your, your frame is always on the child client first and foremost. And how do you then resource communities, resource families, and resource schools to ensure that these girls get the, have the safety net and the resources, whether it's uniforms or or shoes, or the accompaniment to walk to school when they go to secondary school. What do they need? Bursaries? What do they need to stay in school? And what does the family need mm. to be able to make this decision to secure the, the child's education for as far as, as she wants to go? But poverty, poverty is the, is the root cause of that inequity. And you see that all over the world.
0: So social entrepreneurship is a relatively new concept, really, it's gained prominence over the last couple of decades. And there are a lot of social entrepreneurs, um, myself included, who were maybe doing this work before really identifying as a social entrepreneur. Where did it come from? Are social entrepreneurs new? Um, or can you give us an example of uh, of a really early social entrepreneur? Well there are plenty
1: of examples of of really early social entrepreneurs who were disrupting the status quo and who didn't think of themselves as as social entrepreneurs you know I point to someone like a Florence Nightingale who in the in the 19th century is on the battlefields of Crimea professional nursing hasn't even been developed yet, but she understands the role of sanitation and that more lives can be saved if you're attending to the sanitation needs of surgeries and treatments and bandaging wounds and the rest of it. And so she's able to generate these massive, massive benefits in the most Difficult of circumstances just by paying attention to sanitation and the conditions that Mm -hmm. are required for surgery to result in less infection and less collateral damage, if you will. So someone like Florence Nightingale, Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Phenomenal social entrepreneur. She's also tracking the data, so she has the proof that adopting these methods. Atul Gawande today is doing the same kinds of things with mm. his with his checklist. So there, what do you have there? You know, a century and a half gap, and two phenomenal social entrepreneurs figuring out how to improve health outcomes with readily available methodologies. And you know, tremendous example, I think, in Florence Nightingale. Mm.
0: So over the years you've worked with hundreds of social entrepreneurs around the world attacking just about every imaginable problem and every geography are there characteristics or traits that in your view make social entrepreneurs successful?
1: Well, the same the same attributes that make entrepreneurs successful make social entrepreneurs successful. So with with one one big differentiator You know, the social entrepreneur has to go through a very rigorous process of uh, understanding the system in which a problem is embedded. We were talking about poverty earlier. So whether it's an environmental problem or a health problem or an educational problem or a gender equity problem, what are the systems that are enabling that the social entrepreneur has to really understand that system. The entrepreneur has to understand the market and you know what will be disrupted in that market if her or his innovation comes into that into that market. So they have to have that kind of discipline to really do the assessment required of the at the systemic level, and then actually building the solution, imagining what could be if that solution were to come to four and then building the solutions so building the often this is an organization this might be strategic relationships it's the financing model it's the it's the impact measurement model all the rest of that has to be developed and then finally scaling that solution so those four phases are really critical to social entrepreneurship and i would say that again the analogy with entrepreneurship is discipline and focus so social entrepreneurs are not you know, they're not ad hoc characters. They are incredibly intense focus driven, just as just as entrepreneurs are. The difference between them, I would say, is this quality of humility. <laughs> so the social entrepreneur understands that the people who have the greatest intelligence about these challenges that affect and afflict them are those on the ground who bear the burden of that disadvantage themselves. So humility around the context, humility around how difficult this is, humility around the the long trajectory for driving change, humility around the results that can be undone. I mean, look at the work that you were doing in Africa, and then along comes Ebola, and you have all of a sudden this massive crisis on your on your hands. Well, those examples are, are rife in the world. You know, someone like Willie Foote working with smallholder farmers and coffee producers to uh, create the what he calls the missing middle, the investment in the in the middle that will help these producers organize and scale up their enterprises so that they can access global markets. They're hit with coffee rust, so this this plague, and all of a the sudden, their 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 income is gone, their livelihoods are gone, all the benefits they were accruing gone. They have to start over. So, you know these. These challenges just come, you know, they come uh, not single spies, but in battalions, as Shakespeare would say. And and social entrepreneurs have to have the resilience, the resourcefulness, and the staying power. But ultimately, they stay humble in the face of just how complex, demanding, intensive, and long-term this work is.
0: Okay, so... We recorded this conversation in Oxford just before the reports of a deadly new virus emerged from Wuhan, China. And when Sally mentioned the inevitable challenges coming in battalions, none of us knew the current crisis was then already waiting in the wings. So I wanted to get her thoughts on what role social entrepreneurs can play in the COVID-19 era. We're in the midst of something terrible, on the cusp of something new, And it's in liminal spaces like these that social entrepreneurs really thrive. Sally recorded a quick update for us, which you'll find at the end of our conversation. But we're on a roll now, so let's dive back in. Next, I wanted to talk to Sally about this idea that social entrepreneurship is not a business model, but a way of working. Use the Entrepreneur's Toolkit, Creativity, Vision, Grit, Resourcefulness to attack the root causes of a social or environmental challenge, and you're a social entrepreneur. It doesn't matter if you're a founder or part of a big organization, whether you're in the private sector or a nonprofit or in government. Sometimes you need to be all of the above. What matters is that you have an entrepreneurial streak and a systems view. I asked Sally to give us an example of a social entrepreneur working within government to drive change
1: no one knows better than you, Peter, the importance of identifying those folks and um, and understanding and unlocking their power to innovate and to partner with others in creating change. Agnes Bidawaho, of course, was the Minister of Health in Rwanda when when you and PIH started working there. Mm-hmm. She'd come through, of course, the genocide and understood that rebuilding the health infrastructure was going to be critical, absolutely essential to Rwanda's future. Partners in Health was there to help build that infrastructure. So a partnership really that was exemplary in every way because she had the appetite to learn. She actually had the mandate to experiment and she had you as partners to actually encourage her experiment show the way. And when the opportunity came then to anchor that partnership and you came up with this idea, Partners in Health came up with this idea of the University of Global Health Equity. Of course, she was your greatest champion. Mm-hmm. And today she's, is she the dean? She's
0: the vice chancellor. She's the vice she cha- runs she's the University of the, Global okay. Health Equity. She's, uh-huh. the,
1: she's the vice chancellor. But what an example of a partner in government who actually then transcends her role. She did step down as minister. We know that. But she transcends that role to become a global actor and in a position really to train, to equip, and to promulgate this vision for what global health equity and the systems that will support it could be in the world. So a really fantastic example of um, how institution building is a big piece of social entrepreneurship.
0: And Agnes is one of the the most effective social entrepreneurs I've ever worked with. She's also a fierce and hilarious human being. And uh, stay tuned uh, for a conversation with her on an upcoming podcast. I want to talk about failure. Uh, Again, going back into the world of tech entrepreneurs, failure is a badge of pride, right? I'm a serial entrepreneur, and my first three ventures all failed before I started my unicorn. Um, And there's an embrace of failing forward that we don't see so much in the social sector. Uh, And maybe that comes from the pressure from funders or donors um, to not share failures. That's, I think, a real challenge that we face in the field. Could you talk about that a little bit and, and how we can do better to embrace failure and to learn from it?
1: Yeah, I can. And, you know, I think there's a difference between an entrepreneurial venture focused on a product that may or may not be important to people's lives and livelihoods and a a service or an innovation that could have life and death consequences. So you can't be cavalier mm-hmm. about failure in this work where where lives are at stake and there are very serious consequences if you... If you fail, on the other hand, you have to have that market feedback orientation, because unless you are learning from your market about what works, and what actually is relevant, we talked about proximity a little while ago, what is going to work with the context, the culture, the environment, the, you know, that the actors who are in place who want to see change and improvement along the way, you're not going to have a ghost of a chance of actually making the order of magnitude impact that you're that you're striving for. So failure is a piece of it, but failure also requires, I think, more resilience. There are some very good examples of failure in the Skull portfolio, and it's hard to talk about them, Peter, because we can take responsibility as a funder. So so what did we miss in the diligence? What did we insist upon that didn't You know, maybe we were saying, okay, you've outgrown this leadership structure. You really need to refresh your leadership in some way. But if the organization can't or won't or doesn't do that, whose failure is it? Mm -hmm. Is it ours? Is it the organization's? And in our space, I think we have a do-no-harm ethic. Mm -hmm. And we also have an aversion, I think, to blame, And so it's much harder to talk about. One of the things we know, though, is that too much money too quickly can also create burdens on organizations. And they can expand without the discipline and the strategy in place that's needed to sustain that expansion. So when a funder invests in an organization, scaling that investment and making sure there are others coming into so that there can be more of a learning and support community as the organization uh, fails forward. I think that's a critical piece of the puzzle because uh, funders don't always collaborate and go into investments with their eyes wide open and an appreciation for how difficult this work is and what some of the risks and some of what the appetite for really learning mm-hmm. about what works and what doesn't might be. So that you know, those trends toward greater collaboration and an appetite for learning and a willingness to see things tried and um, work or not work is really critical to both sides, to the social entrepreneur into the impact investing side.
0: Mm. And, and during your time at the Skoll Foundation, the foundation really helped to drive some interesting new initiatives and collaborative philanthropy towards really creating more systemic change, co-impact, the Audacious Project. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you see as the promise of those kinds of collaborations?
1: Well, I think there's an appetite amongst serious philanthropists to learn. And there also is this realization, this, this growing humility in the face of these complex, you said, wicked problems. They are wicked problems whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, education, whether it's gender equity and poverty, uh, you know, the sine qua non of most of these challenges. So their appetite for learning is, I think, in part what's fueling this um, collaborative approach. It's also true that social investors aren't always able or willing to um, deploy the resources, the time, the energy, the diligence in learning about an organization, a space, a context that they might apply to their financial investments. And so these collaboratives also help inspire the confidence that this is worth this risk, this investment, because people are are there to share that learning, to share that risk, and to share that opportunity. So I think that's driving much of this, the constraints of time, the appetite for learning, and the desire to really see these promising ventures scale their impact.
0: Great. And moving beyond philanthropy, because clearly all the philanthropic in the world and international aid assistance in the world isn't going to be enough to address some of these challenges. Let's talk a bit about impact investing, a field that's been growing um, really significantly in in recent years. And impact investing really is an umbrella term for private investment that seeks a blend of financial and social returns. Uh, There's real opportunity to bring new capital into um, markets to address some of these problems. What do you see as the promise and maybe some of the risks uh, of impact investing?
1: Well, um, stepping back to look at the rise of impact investing, I have to give credit to the rise of social entrepreneurship. Because just as you wouldn't have any venture investing without the rise of entrepreneurs, um, you won't have impact investing without generations of social entrepreneurs who are creating ventures that are actually capable of delivering these double bottom line returns. So the relationship between social entrepreneurs and the ventures in the pipeline and impact investors is critical. And too often, I think, we tend to look at impact investing as a discipline, a domain, a field without consideration for the ventures that are required to make a decent, meaningful, impactful social investment. So that's number one for me. Number two, I would say that this uh, coupling of financial return and social return is a tricky business. We had the development impact bond field, which is still you know, still very much after proof of concept. We have organizations like the RISE Fund, which are able to raise a $2 billion fund and go after investments that can absorb in, in you know, in everything from ed tech to um, to health that are capable of absorbing a hundred million, five hundred million, fifty million dollar infusion, and we have at the other end of the spectrum these very tiny enterprises that um, are in the microfinance space. So again, there's a huge spectrum that's emerging here. And I'm not sure that we've done the work we need to do yet in in figuring out in the evolution of a social venture at what point it is ready for capital that can be provided, you know, pure philanthropic capital to impact investing capital to a potential venture that realized it has an enterprise model, a relative newcomer to the Skull Portfolio Callisto, a uh, mm-hmm. venture created by a woman named Jess Ladd. Callisto is a technology enabled platform that provides for any victim of uh, sexual abuse assault to report on her terms, on his terms, the incidence of assault, can keep it as private as she or he wishes, but now there's a database. Mm-hmm. So that if that perpetrator, again... <laughs> <laughs> is named and in this and captured in this database then the individual can decide whether or not to take action and this is being prototyped on college campuses but you can see the potential for this to be a a market leader you can see its potential to be to scale well beyond college campuses you know large NGOs, corporations, government institutions. So so this is a model that I would say has serious enterprise potential and yet it's being structured in its early days as a socially entrepreneurial venture that is attracting philanthropic capital. So how does it actually then exploit that opportunity without losing it's integrity, its, it's credibility, and it's raison d'etre, mm. which is to um, stop the uh, perpetrators from their abuse of, um, of women, children, and others. So that's a good example of how something can really begin to um, develop its enterprise model, but got to have a lot of good work done to be able to realize that potential.
0: An incredibly timely example in a world of Me Too, which is really exposing how deeply entrenched um, these, these problems are.
1: And Me Too, it's interesting because Me Too is a movement and it's taken these stories out of the shadows and into the... Into the light, Mm -hmm. and it's given women now the confidence to come forward. Some of them, you know, harboring 20 years of um, pain before they've done that. But there's a movement, and here's a solution. And this solution then can be can anchor this movement in a way that actually attacks the problem uh, systemically. Uh, So that relationship between a movement Mm -hmm. and a tool is is really interesting to me.
0: Mm. And the business model that Callisto has had has gotten it to a certain point now, but there's potential for the organization to increase its scale and its impact. Uh, through different approaches is really important. And before you were talking about the long and winding path Mm -hmm. of uh, of social change organizations and social entrepreneurs, I I wonder if you could give another uh, example of, uh, of an organization that has had faced an inflection point or had to pivot either their business model or their service model, maybe moving from direct service into working in a different way to continue to try to shift the system it was engaged with.
1: Well, there are any number of examples but one of the most vivid is uh, Jordan Casello's work with with Vision Spring, mm. and that's, in essence, Jordan realized that a pair of glasses could actually make an enormous difference to uh, an individual doing close work, often in a developing world context, whether it's you know weaving or handcrafts or. Or something, and as vision deteriorates with with age, you know, a simple pair of readers could make a huge difference. Mm. And yet, the markets didn't exist, the products didn't exist, the products weren't robust enough to survive in these environments. So he set about trying to prove this model and um, and experiment with different distribution models. You know, hub and spoke model, a partnerships model, et cetera, et cetera. And over time he realized that unless he was engaging in a really productive way with the private sector, um, he'd never cracked the codes. So he went from being a social entrepreneur who was leading an organization, in this case Vision Spring, doing the research that demonstrated that, you know, here's the investment for a pair of readers that let's just pick a number, anywhere from, you know, five to twenty dollars. Could make this difference in livelihood of uh, thousands and thousands of dollars. So you have a, you know, you have a model. You've proven it. You've proven its efficacy and its value. You know, you haven't cracked the code on distribution, but you've got to raise your game to interact with these other forces—the market forces and the government forces—to really be able to get glasses into these markets that are that are needed. So Jordan goes from being A social entrepreneur in the traditional way, which is someone who identifies a problem, works hard to understand the system, creates a solution, develops the organization in order to scale that solution, and then realizes that he's got to work at the level of the system. And so he moves out of his management leadership role with the organization and creates this I-alliance of actors at the at the meta level and we see that happening with with other actors too. Mabel von Aranya, Girls Not Brides, another example of a disempowerment for women and gender inequity and she identifies a sweet spot in child marriage and builds a coalition of organizations, I think more than 300 400 organizations now in this coalition to defeat Child marriage. And so there are grassroots actors in her coalition as well as very, very large organizations, the UNICEFs and so of the world. And communicating their learning with one another, getting some project financing through Girls Not Brides, and really driving to um, eliminate this scourge of child marriage. And and Mabel has now realized the potential to um, crack the wedding market itself, which is a multi-billion dollar market globally, and make it possible for people to, instead of you know registering at a store or retail establishment for gifts, to say, no, we want people to make contributions to Vow. So she's created an enterprise that will actually help to fuel this movement globally and crack the the wedding market the private sector market as well as this grassroots ngo field that she's brought the actors together mm. and so a very interesting way of attacking this global problem the other thing she did and that girls not brides did is they got an indicator into the sdgs a child marriage indicator so now countries can report on their progress toward reducing and eliminating child marriage in their in their countries
0: mm. Fascinating. Transparency is the best disinfectant, right? In the final part of my conversation with Sally, we're going to talk about how to widen participation in social entrepreneurship. But first, I wanted to get her thoughts on this. At the Skoll Center in Oxford, we try to serve as a bridge between academia and practice, connecting the world of ideas and those who are driving change on the front lines. As we go back to this notion of continuous learning— How important is it that educational institutions are part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem?
1: Well, it's no secret, really, that any actor in this space will come face-to-face with deficiencies at some point. And there is a good example in Jeff Skoll himself, who actually was an entrepreneur in his native Canada before he realized what he didn't know and decided to get himself to Stanford, to the Graduate School of Business, to fill in his areas of um, deficiency. And that's what kind of birthed this idea that the MBA could be a resource for social entrepreneurs as well as for would-be commercial entrepreneurs. And that's what led to creating the Center for Social Entrepreneurship here at the Said Business School in the university. Of Oxford. So just to look at these students who come here, they're coming because they recognize what they don't know, and they want to be effective in this space of driving change. And that's the beauty of a program like this, that it serves to create the same things every other business school does. It helps students create networks. It helps them build their own competencies. It helps build their confidence to go into the world and, and do this work. At the same time, this institution take on some of these big questions. Is impact investing really delivering on its promise? What are the rubrics we need to really assess social impact? What is the difference between assessing impact at any point on a time spectrum and really understanding the arc and the trajectory of of societal change? What is the sustainability imperative? What are the technologies that will help us actually address climate change? You know, a school like this with its faculty, with its intellectual resources, with its access to some of the best minds in the planet, what are the questions that it can do the work against to answer so that we do go forth with these innovations and a much better sense of what their potential is and what their deficiencies on the road to change might be.
0: Absolutely, and it's a, it's a, it's a two-way street, um, and, and really what we're trying to do is create that virtuous cycle of knowledge generation and research and practice all informing one another. And by the way, we don't mention Stanford on this podcast, but otherwise you were terrific. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. Oh, that's all right. perfect. I want to talk a little about the future and the future of, of social entrepreneurship. Maybe to start, a lot of the stories that uh, we've been talking about today um, – You know, there's stories from all over the world, healthcare and education in sub-Saharan Africa to uh, tackling sexual violence on American university campuses. Most of the entrepreneurs we've talked about so far have been predominantly American and and, and European. What can we do and what do we need to do to sort of widen participation and kind of democratize participation in social entrepreneurship around the world? Well, um, funny you should ask because...
1: Earlier today, I was meeting with a number of your students here at the Said Business School who are participating in the Impact Lab and who have come to the business school here because they they see the convergence of a social purpose, a social mission with um, with enterprise development, and they understand the skills they will need to be successful in that, in that endeavor. But they themselves haven't had access to this kind of an educational experience. So in some ways you're helping to answer that question and a number of those candidates are coming from developing world contexts from you know from sub-saharan african countries from latin american countries from eastern asian countries so they're coming from all kinds of settings and they understand whether it's climate change it's clean energy it's microgrid it's FinTech, it's that there's some set of solutions here that are appropriate in their context. They also see more and more examples, the MPEZs and so on, the examples. Of course, we've tracked now for 30 years, we've been tracking the rise of microfinance and microenterprise and microcredits. So the emergence of that whole field is, of course, a real signal of uh, innovation in these contexts. What's interesting to me is also the South-North lessons Mm. that are arising. Community health workers, paraprofessionals, How can the potential for some of that talent be unleashed in the Mm -hmm. developed world context? So, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to see more and more indigenous entrepreneurship, indigenous leadership, and that that is going to unlock ever greater opportunities for all of us to learn about what works and what works without the um, enormous burden of, of financial investment. Some of this stuff, you know this. Peter. We talked about Atul and his work with the Mm checklist. We've talked about community health workers. We know that some of these solutions are well within reach, and they can make enormous, enormous difference. So, you know, solving the problem of the cold chain for vaccination delivery in difficult contexts, these are problems that are just ripe for uh, social ventures.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to make it a priority on this podcast to highlight a number of those voices uh, and, the, and the great ideas that come from everywhere, even when opportunity does not. But, you know, it's the definition of entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond the resources controlled. As we sit here today and, and we chatted a bit before the podcast about how we're, I think we're both fundamentally optimists but are pretty troubled by the state of the world at the, at the moment, uh, and maybe more than at least I have, have been in my lifetime. Um, so at, at a time when trust in governments and other big institutions is at an all-time low, uh, and that includes big business, at a time when democratic institutions are under threat and autocrats are on the rise, at a time when the, the climate crisis is becoming more evident and prevalent um, in, our, in our daily lives than ever before, what's the role of social entrepreneurs now?
1: Well, it's never been more important to have social entrepreneurs because social entrepreneurs really shine a light on the possible and show what human beings are capable of at their best. And so even in a context such as we are facing now, whether you here in Britain with the exit from the European Union and the U.S. with... uh, the attacks on institutions and different trajectories for impact. So you know, climate regulations and emission standards and the and the rest of this. You understand that the work of institution building, the work of um, innovation, the work of identifying and scaling solutions is never done. And you actually, I think one of the sobering lessons of um, of any venture is it's very hard to declare victory. You can say we've made these gains in eradicating disease um, in, uh, in vaccinations, but then look at the epidemic of measles and the anti-vax movement. So you can't ever fully declare victory. You've got to stay with this. You've got to adapt as new challenges come to the fore that's why we need social entrepreneurs. And we need social entrepreneurs to create this citizen base that will hold our governments accountable, that will be able to identify the actors we need to lead us at the political level in ministries, at subnational level. We need to really build the population and the citizens that will ensure, I think, better states and a better world for all of us.
0: Mm, that would have been a great note to end on, wouldn't it? But then along came coronavirus. So I caught up with Sally in her home outside Philadelphia and asked her what the pandemic means for the role of social entrepreneurs.
1: It's almost uncanny this moment when I think of just how beautifully, beautifully poised social entrepreneurs are to respond to this crisis. They're so used to having to pivot in the field when a monsoon hits or a crop fails or some cataclysmic event comes to just gobsmack a population. Social entrepreneurs understand just how quickly you have to adapt because these are vulnerable populations they work with. Cutting through the noise, the misinformation, we need more than ever to know whom to trust, where we can turn. And social entrepreneurs, who better, than social entrepreneurs at ensuring that this network of trust, this reliability, this consummate integrity is a resource for communities and for nations. I think it's no accident that an organization like Partners in Health, which has been building public health systems, building armies of community health workers who are there on the front lines, has been able to harvest the lessons of Ebola in Liberia for example, and work with the Massachusetts government to put in place an army of contact tracers. We forget that it's these human networks, these human networks of of trust that are just as important, if not more important, to the delivery mechanisms when we do have a vaccine or we do have tests that are sufficient to tell us who's infected and who needs to be quarantined. So this this initiative in Massachusetts, I think, is just so emblematic of the role of social entrepreneurs at a moment like this. Another example, and I have firsthand experience with this, is, is Khan Academy, which for the last 10 plus years has been putting in place an online system for delivering math education to to young people. And now Khan is seeing its enrollments, its parent enrollments grow by leaps and bounds. But as a grandmother, I can tell you that having this at hand, this free, massively uh, well-developed and well-constructed resource to ensure that kids don't lose the gains they've made during school, here, right here in the U.S., but also all over the world, has been another vital, vital resource. And of course, when I think about organizations that work with girls' education in the field, Educate Girls in India, CampFed in Africa, both have developed, again, these, these fantastic networks. Um, with CampFed, it's the Kama Association and with uh, Educate Girls in India, it's Team Balika. So these forces for literally understanding and monitoring households to be able to serve vulnerable girls and make sure they're in school, now can also do the assessment work of determining whether someone is ill with COVID and needs treatment sooner rather than later. So these networks, the trust of communities is probably our most precious resource during a time like this.
0: My thanks to Sally Osberg. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to a special bonus episode of Reimagine, a podcast series from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Saeed Business School. Now, don't go too far. We hope to be back soon with some more bonus additions for you while we plot the second series of Reimagine. There are so many important stories going untold and amazing humans whose voices haven't broken through. During this period of disruption and loss, we all need to know that there are people out there determined to help build a future that's better than what we're leaving behind. So keep in touch. You know where to find us. Visit reimaginedpodcast.com, find me on Twitter at Peter Drobak, or email me at peter at reimaginedpodcast.com. Do you want to see things differently? Then take a moment right now to click and subscribe. And even better, rate and review us. Eve, my producer, wants me to tell you that it's the wind beneath our wings. I really just can't. So unless you want to hear me sing Bette Midler, hashtag Reimagine agony, then be my hero and hit us with five stars. Until next time, thanks and be safe.